Father, thank you for your word. God, we believe uh, that your word is powerful. It is able to, uh, to, to see into the depths of who we are. God, your word works as a mirror, allows us to see ourselves. Uh, Father, your word is, is so powerful. It transforms us, um, God, when we read it in faith, when we believe and apply the truths to our life. And so would you help us do that today, God? Would you God, open up our hearts and our ears that as we read through the Bible, God, we would just literally hear your voice today. God, you would speak to each one of us, Father, and do a work in our lives. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you're just dropping in or visiting with us, we've been in the book of Colossians together. Um, We've got two Sundays left, this Sunday and next Sunday, and we're wrapping up the series. Um, After that, we're going to do a a series entitled One Church, Multiple Generations, and look at how God is moving uh, in each generation of the church from kids all the way through senior adults. Um, we're going to do that for about four weeks, and then we will start a series in the fall or the end of August that leads into the fall entitled The People of God, where we look at the different people who are written about in the Bible and how each of their lives ultimately is, is in the Bible to point us to Christ. And so we'll take that journey through the fall um, all the way up to the Advent season, and then, uh, and then next year is going to be exciting, so we'll, we'll save that for later. We have two weeks left in this series, so we are in chapter three today, and we're actually going to read the first three verses we read today will be the last three verses we read last week, because what happens is, uh, in order to, uh, to preach through God's word faithfully, um, oftentimes what happens is we take these, these big picture concepts and we break them into pieces, but it's necessary to see them as a whole. And so if we, if we don't do that, what, happens, what tends to happen is we just get part of the counsel or part of the gospel. For example, um, repentance. So repentance is more than just turning away from sin, right? It's turning away from sin and to Christ. If you just turn away from sin, you haven't repented fully, right? And so like, we have to understand like, it's not an either or, it's a both and. And so last week, we talked about putting to death what is earthly within us, putting our sin nature to death, putting off the old self. But that's just half of uh, what Paul's getting at here because he then turns and says, now put on Christ. And so it's not two steps as much as it is one movement away from who I used to be, right, and embracing and walking in in who I am now today. And so we're going to pick up where we left off last week to see the continuity between not just last week and this week, but really this week and the last three weeks. And so we're going to start in verse 9 together. Colossians 3, verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, we've been talking about through this series how uh, the predominant theme of the book of Colossians is the preeminence and the supremacy of Christ. And the last two or three weeks we've been talking about, okay, what does that mean then for our lives? If Christ is supreme, what does that mean for me here on earth? How does that play out in practical ways in my daily life? And here in this one phrase, Paul has kind of captured all that when he said, Christ is all and he is in all, right? So Christ is all, supreme, preeminent. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He is, listen to this one, 
all satisfying, meaning that when I'm satisfied in Christ, I don't need to find my satisfaction anywhere else. My job, my career, my spouse, my friends, my church, my Christ is all, he's in all, he is all powerful, he is all knowing, all satisfying. There is no one greater, no one higher, no one wiser, and no one more glorious. He's all, but not just all, he's in all, meaning that all that is Christ is in us, dwelling within us, the Holy Spirit of God is in us. Christ is all, and he's in all. And God's spirit in us is doing a transformational redemptive work. I love um, this kind of where he lays it out. In Christ there is neither Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. And what is he saying? Like whatever your earthly identity was before you became a Christian, right? Now that's dropped, right? Whether it was I'm a mom, I'm a teacher, I'm an architect, I'm a plumber, I'm a mechanic, I'm, a, I'm white, I'm black, I'm rich, I'm poor, I'm smart, I'm dumb, I'm fat, I'm skinny, I'm whatever your earthly identity markers are, those are dropped now in Christ. Because the same Christ is in you who's in me, right? And so he says Christ is all, he is in all, there is n- none of these identity markers matter anymore. And then he makes this statement that is so important when he says... He says, take off this old self and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And that's such a powerful statement. I'm gonna pull this apart this morning and talk about what it means to actually put on Christ because the, the key to putting on Christ is embedded in that phrase. Is being renewed, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So to begin with, he words it this way, it is being renewed. You are being renewed. You are not fully renewed yet. Wait a second, I thought I was saved. You are saved. Maybe if you've trusted in Christ, you're saved. But Christianity, right, is not a one and done event where I walk the aisle, ask Jesus to be my savior, and then go about my merry way, and I'll catch up with him in the afterlife. Right, So to be saved means I'm invited into this process of transformation and here the word renewal. And I, if I'm a Christian, if you're a Christian, I am being transformed. It's ongoing. I'm being renewed in knowledge. Now there are multiple places where Paul talks about our renewal and our transformation and almost every time he refers to the mental capacities. Here it's the word knowledge, right? And he means In a simple way, he means knowledge, right? Information, true information though, right? I used to operate based on worldly information, how I saw the world, how I perceived the world, what I I knew, what I learned. But now in Christ, that knowledge is being replaced with true knowledge. Okay, so in one sense, that's what he means. My mind is being renewed. But I think he means even more than that as we talk about what it means to be renewed in our minds. And so in Romans chapter two, or 12, verse two, he says it this way, to the Christian, do not be conformed to this world. Well, how do we not do that? But be transformed, there's that being renewed idea, being transformed by the renewal of what? Your mind. And when we do that, look at what we're able to do, that by testing, you may discern what the will of God is 
what is good, what is acceptable and perfect. Do you want to know what the will of God is? I do. But it's only found through the renewal of my mind. I have to think differently. I have to see the world differently. And what I believe Paul is also including in this is an understanding of recalibrating our conscience. So we're going to talk for a minute about conscience. Um, To start with, we don't talk a lot about conscience in our culture or especially within the church. But the Bible talks about it. Right, so what is conscience, right? Do we mean more than just being unconscious or conscious like awake or is there something to this understanding of conscience? So here's just a quick definition of what we mean. The conscience is the inner feeling or voice that is acting as a guide to the rightness and the wrongness of your behavior. It's that internal feeling or voice, it's like a moral compass guiding you and telling you what is right and what is wrong, especially as it relates to your behavior. Paul talks about conscience in Romans chapter two. I'm gonna read a couple of verses here, starting in verse 14. He's talking about the Gentiles, and when he's talking about Gentiles, he's talking about people who don't know God. Okay, and so he says in verse 14 of Romans two, for when Gentiles who do not have the law Right? They, they, they aren't God-fearing people. They don't have the law of God. However, look at what he says. By nature, when they do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So even somebody who is not a God-fearing person may come to the conclusion, it's wrong to murder. Is it wrong to murder? Yes, is the right answer. How do we know? God's law says what? Do not Murder, right? So we know it's wrong, but even somebody who doesn't know God, right, might have this inner feeling that says, hey, that's wrong. And he explains it. He says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. That's really helpful because that's what our conscience does. It either accuses us or excuses us. Right, we do something that violates our conscience and we have two options, right? We look back on the way I treated my wife yesterday and I think about it and then I can either accuse myself and say, you know what, Jason, that was wrong. Or I can excuse myself and I can say, well, she yelled at me first. And that's what the conscience does. It judges our moral behavior. And so in the end, in verse 16 of Romans 2, it says, on that day, when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. There's gonna be a day where Jesus judges our conscience, your moral compass. Now listen to me, I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but if you are a Christian, that means you are in a redemptive, renewal, transformative process right now, and that means everything that your conscience says is right is not right. Now, I can't tell you where you're wrong because we haven't sat down and talked. We'd have to talk for hours, but somewhere in your thinking, you're wrong about something, right? And, and, and even something that you think is wrong potentially could be right, right? So my conscience has to be renewed and recalibrated, but according to what standard? My experiences in life, what goes well or doesn't go well, or is there something more static than that? Something more foundational by which I can recalibrate my conscience because even the Gentiles sometimes are going to get it right sometimes are going to get it wrong even people who don't know God are sometimes going to get it right and sometimes get it wrong 
right? And their conscience is either going to accuse them or excuse them. But as Christ's followers, our conscience has to be renewed. There's a, uh, a book that's out that um, is specifically about conscience from a Christian perspective, from a biblical perspective by authors who um, I would commend to you. The book is called simply Conscience. Um, it's a book by Andrew Nacelli and J.D. Crowley. And they write about the conscience from a biblical perspective. I want to read a quote here from their book. They write, It shouldn't surprise you that you have a conscience. You're made in the image of God. And God is a moral God. So you must be a moral creature who makes moral judgments. And what is conscience if not shining the spotlight of your moral judgment back on yourself, your thoughts and your actions? A moral being would expect to make moral self-judgments. That's why we do that inherently, right? Don't you make moral self-judgments about yourself? Did I do the right thing? Did I do the wrong thing? I kind of feel icky. Is it, do I feel icky because I did the wrong thing or do I feel icky because I did the right thing and it was hard and we have to think through and make moral judgments about ourselves? So, conscience is inerrant in personhood. It is not the result of sin. It is not something Christians lose after God glorifies them. Here's what he's saying. Your conscience will be with you forever. Right now, your conscience is being renewed. When you step into eternity, your conscience will be perfectly recalibrated and pointed at only righteousness, and you can trust it. But right now, where you are, you cannot fully trust your conscience. You have to check your conscience against God's word. So when we think about the conscience, most of what we learn and hear about the conscience comes from a secular perspective. And, and so from a secular perspective, conscience isn't something that necessarily needs to be recalibrated. It's something to be observed and studied and embraced. Right, so from, from a secular perspective, most of the, the, the counsel you're gonna get is trust your conscience, right? Don't betray your conscience. Trust your conscience. Go with your gut. Accept what it is. Rarely do we hear anybody talking about a need to correct our conscience. Listen, church, sometimes your conscience is wrong. Sometimes, many times, my conscience is wrong. And as a culture, we are continually conforming, reforming, and changing the standard by which we measure conscience. I'll give you an example. So in the foreword of that book I mentioned, Conscience, D.A. Carson, he writes about how it works in our culture today. Listen, he says this, small wonder then that this is an age that gives little thought to the nature and functions of conscience. Conscience is easily trampled if it gets in the way of authentic living. More dangerously, conscience is malleable and easily reshaped to conform in substantial measure to the dictates of our age. We crush conscience in order to toss off what now appear to be the shackles of a bygone age, and then we immediately resurrect conscience in new configurations that establish new shackles, new expectations, new legalisms, new failures, new pools of guilt. For example, by determined suppression, 
in a new generation silences the voice of the conscience in many sexual matters and teases it alive when it comes to the importance of finding out where your coffee beans were grown and what we should do to protect the most recently highlighted victim. What Carson is saying about our conscience is, is it's completely malleable. And if we aren't in the process of having our conscience conform to something that is static, that doesn't change, it's gonna change with our culture and constantly be resurrecting right, new ideas and new measures by which we measure the standard of our conscience. And each generation is gonna do this. Each generation is gonna look at the generations before them and say, you guys were fools. We have it figured out. Grandpa, I love you, but your generation didn't know anything. Mom and dad, you're foolish, but we figured it out. What's happening is the conscience is being reshaped and reformed, right, to what? To the world, to the latest trends of our culture and society. And so what happens when we reform our conscience, there's a new standard by which we measure ourselves, right? And so the conscience is constantly being reformed and reshaped. And as Christians, our conscience should be renewed on a daily basis and conformed to this static truth. Now, he says here a really important thing. He says that when we put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, which we just talked about after something, after the image of its creator. Now that phrase, image of its creator, if you've been in church for any amount of time should ring some bells for you. Does that make you think of Genesis 1? It does me. Like, we were created in what image? The image of God, right? And so when I was created in the image of God, I was created with a conscience, a moral compass, because he's a moral being, I'm a moral being. When Adam was first created, his moral compass always pointed at righteousness. It wasn't until sin entered the equation that the moral compass got recalibrated towards what was pleasing to the eyes, desirable to the heart. And Adam and Eve's consciences, right, became askew. If you go back to Genesis chapter one, verse 26, we read, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness with a moral compass and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We won't unpack all of that, but essentially what God is saying is let's create a being that is set apart from all the rest of creation. How are you set apart from the rest of creation? You have a conscience. Dogs don't have a conscience, right? When was the last time your dog came to you and said, hey, can we talk? really sorry about peeing on the floor. You know, and, and you're right. You do pay all the bills. I've been thinking about it. And you know, I didn't do anything to help clean up the mess, right? I just, you rubbed my nose in it, and then I had this look on my face like I was sorry, but I wasn't really sorry, and, right? Because we laugh, but dogs don't have a conscience. Human beings have a conscience because we were created in the image of a God, right, who has a conscience, and so this is what he's saying. We're being renewed in the knowledge after the image of our creator. Here's how Paul puts it in Ephesians 4, talking about the same topic. He says in verse 21, 
assuming that you have heard about him, that's Jesus, and we're taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self. Does that sound familiar? Put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed, right? It's talking about the same thing. Renewed in the spirit of your what? Minds. And then look at what he says. And put on the new self created after the likeness of God. And how do we know what the likeness of God is? It is what? True righteousness and holiness. That's what's happening to you, Christ follower. You are daily being transformed and renewed in your mind, in your conscience, into the image of your creator. Your moral compass is being recalibrated according to what is true. So we are not only to put off the old self and put to death what is earthly within us, but as we turn to put on the new self, there's this renewing of the mind, a renewing of the conscience. And so in verse 12, he says it again, back to Colossians 3. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, here's what we're to put on. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also, you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, Two things, actually three things. One, we've already talked about when I become a Christian, right? I'm stepping into a process of, of being renewed, sanctification. But I'm also seeing that my sanctifi- sanctification is gonna change the community around me, right? Earlier he said, don't lie to one another. Now he's talking about how we treat one another. And so as I'm saved, I'm stepping into this new community that treats one another differently. And the third thing is this, is I have to put this on. Meekness just doesn't happen naturally. Humility just doesn't happen when I roll out of bed, does it? Kindness just doesn't happen when somebody's rude to you. You have to choose to put that on and to be kind, right? What what naturally happens when somebody's rude to you? You're rude back. You reciprocate. You repay evil with evil. We have to choose to not do that. He's saying, put these things on. Put on kindness. Put on compassionate hearts. Don't just go with the flow and hope it happens. Put on meekness. And then this really tough one, verse 13, begins with this Greek word that's translated, bear with one another. This word would actually be more accurately translated, endure one another. Whoa, that changes my perspective on church, doesn't it? I go to a church with a bunch of people that I'm, I have to endure. Imagine, I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna change the way I do wedding vows. I'm gonna include the word endure in there. Because he's talking about enduring one another's weaknesses and flaws. Not just enduring one another's personality quirking, but like enduring one another's sin. He's talking about forgiving here, right? For better, for worse, for richer and poorer, I will endure your flaws till death do us part, man. I'm gonna put that in wedding vows. It's not, it's not sexy, but it's true, right? 
And anybody who's been married more than 60 seconds knows this is an endurance game. Whew. This is about enduring one another. And this is what he's saying, church. Listen, you've got to put this on. It's not just going to happen. Endure one another. What do you mean, Paul? Well, I'll tell you what I mean. If somebody has a complaint against somebody else, forgive them. Forgive one another. As, I, as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. So not only am I being transformed into the image of Christ by the renewal of my conscience and my mind, but together we're being renewed into the image of Christ, right? So people can see within our community who Christ is by the way we treat one another if we put on Christ, right? If we just do half of the thing and try to put the old me to death and take off the old me and then just go about my business, guess what? I'm gonna keep resurrecting the old me. I'm not gonna treat you with compassion, or kindness, or meekness, or humility. I've gotta put this on. And then he gives us some more counsel in the last few verses here we'll look at today, starting in verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That is such an important word. He doesn't say just let it flow, let it come and go. That's a word of authority and submission. Submit your hearts to the peace of Christ. Don't let anxiety or depression or anger or frustration or annoyances rule your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule. To which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. I want you to count how many times the word thankful comes up. So, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So it's a really important part of what we're talking about is thankfulness, right? And there's always room to be thankful. When I'm stuck in traffic, I can be thankful that I have a car to be stuck in traffic in. I get frustrated with my wife, I can be thankful that by God's grace, <laughs> right, he brought her into my life because I don't deserve her. Even when I don't like her and I'm frustrated with her, I still have room to be thankful. No matter what's going on in my life today and circumstances that I'm facing in the midst of a cancer diagnosis, I can be thankful. Why? Because I have hope. Not just in this life, but I have Hope beyond this life, right? And so he's saying, listen, thankful is the essence of what we're talking about here as we put on the new self. Let's do so with thankfulness. So we're gonna let the peace of Christ rule. We're gonna let the word of Christ uh, dwell richly in our hearts. That's a really important part of what we're talking about, how we put on Christ. Romans 10, 17 says this, faith comes from hearing, and hearing what? Word of God, the words of Christ. You want more faith in your life? Anybody? Are you good? Right? You want more faith? Faith comes from hearing. Hearing what? The words of Christ. And here Paul is saying, let the words of Christ dwell in your heart. Like we open our, our Bible and we, like, we read it. We meet God here. We don't just check off a box in case somebody asks me if I read my Bible. I say, oh, I read my Bible. Like, no, I'm, I'm meeting God here. I'm looking for God here. I'm reading about the gospel here. I'm reading about redemption here. I'm finding truth here. My conscience is being recalibrated here. 
And he says, let that word of God dwell richly in your hearts. And if you'll do that, then you'll be able to what? Teach and admonish one another in the word. Because if you don't have the word of God dwelling in your hearts, you try to teach and admonish one another, where are you gonna get your data from? The way you see the world? I'm sorry, but your way that you see the world is skewed. You want, you want proof? Have you ever been in an argument? All the married people said? Yeah, we've all been in arguments, which is proof, not necessarily that you're wrong, but just proof that we have different perspectives, right? Somebody was wrong, but have you ever been wrong in an argument? Okay, which tells us what? You cannot fully trust your perspective. It is skewed. You see the world oftentimes through your flesh and through your fleshly desires. And, and so listen, don't trust your conscience. Recalibrate it. If you feel like something is wrong, you should ask, what does the word of God say about this? If, if you feel, find yourself justifying something is right, you need to ask, what does the word of God say about this? And if the word of God is dwelling richly in our hearts, we can teach and admonish one another in the word. We can sing psalms and spiritual songs and hymns to one another that are rooted in what? The word I wanna, I wanna just, just quickly, I know we're not all singers, I've heard you, you don't all sound good. <laughs> but in Christ, you're all called to open your mouth and give glory to God and to praise him. And we were just commanded to sing songs, not with one another, to one another. Did you catch that? Like I know there's this kind of this macho thing, like oh, I'm just afraid people hear, like listen, we've been called to do this to proclaim the glories of his riches out loud with whatever ability you have. And, and, and listen, like, you get prepared because if you're going to eternity with me, we're gonna be singing. That's what the Bible says. He's saying, listen, I, you want to put on Christ? Let the word of Christ dwell within your heart and then sing to one another. Just, if you don't sing good, you don't have to sing that loud. Just sing, though. <laughs> and do everything, do everything, listen, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Why? Because he's all. Not in the name of Solid Rock Church, not in the name of your community group, not, not in the name of, right, your earthly identities, in the name of Christ. So here's how I wanna end today. As we talked earlier at the beginning, to put off and to put on is this one, this one spiritual motion, right? As I put off the old me, I've gotta replace that with something, and I replace it with what? With Christ. And so if we back up, uh, to the beginning of chapter three. Here are just the bullet points of how we do that. How do we put off the old self, put, put what's earthly within us to death? How do we do that? How do we put sin to death? And how do we put on Christ? Here it is. Going back three weeks. We hear and believe the gospel on a daily basis. Now don't just nod your head at me. That means intentionally, right? You've got to position yourself to hear the gospel daily. So either music you're listening to, obviously through reading the word, or a podcast, or you're spending time with another believer and you are talking, like over coffee about the gospel and how it applies to your life, but daily, we hear and we believe the gospel. We set our minds, attention, and our hearts, affection on Christ and off of earthly things. We stop making provisions for the flesh, which is that idea of like, every time I screw up, I look back, why do I keep doing this? Well, the answer is because you keep make, making provisions to do this. So we stop making provisions for the flesh. We let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. We let the word of Christ dwell richly in our hearts. 
and we teach and admonish one another in the word. We sing psalms, spiritual songs, and hymns to one another, and we do everything for the glory of Jesus. That's how we put to death the old us, and we put on Christ. Listen, this is a transformative work that the Holy Spirit of God does in you, and he's calling you to participate in it. It's both. You're not just sitting on, laying on the spiritual massage table hoping God will just work it all out, wake me up when you're done. God's like, no, 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 no. We're gonna do this by faith. And by faith means you're gonna participate in the supernatural work that I'm doing in you. You gotta, put, you gotta take some stuff off here and you gotta put some stuff on. But listen, do it in faith because my spirit, everything that I am is in you. And I'm gonna meet you there. And I'm gonna transform you there. I'm gonna renew your mind there and recalibrate your conscience there. And I'm gonna conform you into the image of Jesus. So we've been called to participate. All right, I'm gonna pray now um, that God's word as it has spoken, as he has spoken to you through his word, that you would respond to that today. Uh, Maybe today is a day of um, self-evaluation and taking some spiritual inventory. Maybe something from the the bullet point list from Colossians 3 has like resonated with you and you're like, you know what? I need to do that. I need to participate in that. So right now, let's pray together. And would you just spend some time with God working those things out? And I'm gonna ask our prayer partners to come forward and our worship team to come forward as they do that. Listen, if you're here today and you have not trusted in Christ as your savior, this is the most important decision you can make with your life. This is literally a life and death decision for you to make. I know you probably feel like you have things together in this life, like right now, but what are you gonna do in the next life? Where's your security for the next life? The Bible tells us that Jesus is the only way to salvation. And so if that's you, I'm gonna encourage you to take a step of faith and trust in Jesus today. By that, here's what I mean. Okay, that you trust that his death on the cross and his resurrection is enough for you, to not only forgive all your sins, but to make you right and holy, to empower all that we've talked about today, this transformative work in you, by trusting in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation. I'm going to pray that you'd make that decision today as we wrap up. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us through Colossians 3, God, for giving us insight and wisdom into how you work in us and through us. God, we know, we know because of the cross you are for us, you love us. God, we know you desire to transform us into something better. The image of Jesus, the imago Dei, the image of our creator. So God, would you do that work this morning in us? And for the person, God, who does not know you today, they would take that step of faith and trust in the work of Jesus pray all this in his powerful and glorious name.